Well, welcome. Uh, glad everybody everybody can hear us and we're all good. Uh, just want to, as we start this book, we're going to start the book of uh, of First Peter. Uh, it is one of my favorite books. <coughs> it is a it is very autobiographical for Peter. Uh, as Peter writes this book, uh, there are a lot of remembrances of how he walked with Christ for three years. A lot of the verbiage he uses in this book is things he remembers in his life with Christ. He remembers uh, in his walk with him. He remembers his failures. He remembers his shortcomings. And uh, the Holy Spirit just uses these remembrances, and we'll look at some of them in a minute, but it's a very autobiographical book for Peter. It is a very biographical book, I would call it for me. I can identify with uh, Peter. He is my favorite character in the New Testament, obviously excluding, uh, 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 of course, Jesus Christ. But this is a very uh, exciting book uh, for me personally. And I want us to think of it as we get into this book. Uh, Peter is the most uh, uh, in the in the in the uh, I guess the New Testament. Peter is the most described a character in the Gospels. We know more about Peter than any of the other disciples, any of the more other apostles, than any other, uh, with the exception of Paul. And we'll look at we'll look at their lives here in a second. But as we as we think about Peter. And uh, I want us to think about this as we get to brainstorming, start warming up to this book. I want us to think about uh, the personality, and I want us to think about the character of Peter and uh, his life situation that's recorded in, in, the, in the book, of, uh, in the Gospels. And I just want us to think about Peter. And let's, let's, let's name some up. Uh, I'm going to unmute everybody. And uh, uh, personality traits for Peter. And as you think about Peter, uh, as you remember his story in the Gospels and in the book of Acts, what do you think about Peter and some of his character traits? And then I'm going to look about how God takes these traits and uses them. And then I want to look how God uh, uh, changes him. Uh, through his life and changes him as he walks with Christ. So when you think of Peter, uh, what do you think about with Peter? Impulsive. Pardon me? Impulsive. Impulsive. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. What else? I think he was very bold. He wasn't scared to, you know, say the gospel, even everybody was, you know, trying to, you know, put him down. He wasn't, he was bold. He was bold, except for when he denied the Lord. And we're going to get into that. Great point. Great point, Brian. Anybody else about Peter? He's impulsive. He's bold. Anything else about Peter? Well, I know that Scripture doesn't talk about it a lot, but the fact, I think he was loving for his family because he cared about his mother-in-law, you know. It, it, when it talks about him caring for his mother-in-law, I, I think that shows a characteristic there. Okay. Very good. Uh, Thank along you. Thank along with that, I'll I'll say he was like a, he had a protective demeanor about him, not only for the group and the band of brothers that he was with when he walked with Christ, but for his family and the people that around him, not to deal okay. the guys he fished with. Very good. Anybody else? 
Peter. He was a leader. He was a leader. leader. Yeah. Thank you for that. Hard worker. Hard worker. Anybody else? Peter was untrained in the scripture, and he was an uneducated man, according to Acts. Peter was bold. Peter was brash. Peter was very opinionated. Does he resemble any of you so far? Peter was very impetuous. Uh, I identify with Peter. Peter was very passionate, but Peter was very abrupt. Peter was very ardent. Peter was very animated. Peter was emotional. He wore his emotion on his sleeve. He was impulsive, as Chris said. But Peter was very inconsistent. Peter was volatile. Sometimes Peter didn't think. Sometimes Peter was over-enthusiastic. I love Peter. Because Peter is an A-type personality. He's the leader of the group. He's bold. And Peter resembles me, and I resemble Peter in a lot of ways. So we see this personality that God has given Peter. We see through his life that God molds him and changes him. He takes him from this brash man, and he humbles him through the denial. He humbles him when he brings in the first fishing trip. Remember we talked about this last week when when Jesus supernaturally brings this catch in and Peter bows before him. He says, my Lord and my God, I'm a sinful man. Depart from me. So we see Peter in his, can you just imagine being with, with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John and, and Moses and Elijah show up and the first thing that comes out of your mouth is you talk about putting your foot in it. He says, can I make a booth so we all can dwell in this booth? He just says things that are without thinking, but he's he's got so much passion. And, you know, when Jesus is trying to wash his feet, he says, you know, you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus says, if you're going to wash my feet, you have to move to me. And then he says something that I would say, then wash my whole body, wash my head, and just wash me all over. So, I love Peter, very emotional. You know, he said, everybody may fail you, but not me. So he's a proud guy. But but this book demonstrates his remembrance of how Christ changes him. Now let's look at uh, something you may seem a little like I'm chasing a rabbit here. Now let's look at, we look at uh, Peter's personality. Now let's look at Paul's personality. And I want to sort of dovetail how God works in our personality types, and he uses us in our personality types, and how he changes us by his grace to accomplish his purpose. Now let's switch gears and think about Paul. Peter was uneducated and untrained. Tell me about Paul. He had been trained by Gambel, so he knew all the rabbinical things that he needed to know for Scripture. Okay, so as opposed to Peter, who is untrained and unlearned, Paul is skilled Pharisee, brilliant mind, a great thinker. So he's completely opposite of Peter. What else about Paul do we know? He was very zealous. He was zealous as a 
when he was against Christ and he was zealous for him when he became a believer. Okay, he was very zealous for Christ. What does he say about himself in Galatians? He said he was an insolent man. What does insolent mean? Insolent is is it's in the it's in my it's in my note violently arrogant. Uh, Paul was since he was so learned. That's why he said knowledge puffs up. He was very knowledgeable and wise. And uh, before his conversion, this this was a source of great. uh, issues with him and God changes him through this. What else do we know about Paul as opposed to Peter is bold and he's an A-type personality and he's brash. Uh, what, what would you characterize Paul as being? You remember what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2? He says, I am uh, in weakness, fearful, trembling. He's not a great speaker. Paul is not an imposing figure. He's sort of the opposite. I would say he's more of a beta personality, just not real bold when it comes to his natural personality, but God takes that. He takes that arrogance and he humbles him. He gives him a thorn in his side. He humbles him. He takes his natural personality traits, how he was raised, and God changes it. He takes this fearful not a good speaker, and he fills him with his spirit, and he becomes the most prolific writer in the New Testament. He Amen. becomes bold for Christ. He suffers for Christ. So as you see, these two figures of the New Testament, God takes their natural tendencies, he changes them, he uses them for his purposes, for his glory. And so just sort of a warm-up as we get into Peter. Now, getting back to Peter. He is clearly the leader of the apostles. In every uh, listing of the apostles, Peter is always first. And if you look with me, uh, uh, just in the uh, in the uh, Gospels, look at uh, Matthew ten two. He's listed first. Matthew ten two, just an indication that, uh, that he's the leader of the group. And he's always listed first in the listings of the apostles. Uh, look at Matthew 10, 2. Uh, we see this. Now, the names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon. So we see him listed first. If you'll, root, if you'll run over to Mark uh, chapter 3, verse 16, you see this is another listing of the apostles, the disciples. And we see again that. Simon is listed first. 316, uh, Jesus is listing them. And then the first one we see, verse 16, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. So we see him listed first. And then we see this in Luke uh, 16, uh, 6, verse 14, excuse me, the listing of the disciples. Peter's always listed first. And we see that Simon whom he named Peter, and then again he's listed in Acts one thirteen. So, so Peter is clearly the leader of the disciples. There's more information about him than any other four gospels. And uh, and so we see he's named uh, Simon in Greek. 
Let me move that. And so we won't get distractions. So he's, he's named Simon. That's his name in the Greek. His name is Simeon in the Hebrew. And Jesus names him Peter. And the name Peter is the Greek name that Jesus gives Peter. His name is Cephas in Aramaic. That means stone. And so Peter is the little rock upon which the church is built upon. And we'll discuss that later. And that's going to come into play when we discuss that Jesus is the chief cornerstone rejected. And we'll talk about that as we get to it. So there's a lot about Peter. What is uh, Peter is a fisherman by trade. His brother is Andrew. Uh, do you remember how Peter was initially bought to, brought to Christ? Look at John uh, chapter 1. Apparently, Andrew was a follower of John the Baptizer. Before Jesus uh, came on the scene, before he was baptized and he started his ministry, uh, John the Baptist was the forerunner, of course, and he pointed men to Christ. And we see this in John chapter 1, verse 40. Uh, we see uh, John 1, 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, who was Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said, we found the Christ, the anointed one, and he brought him to Jesus. So we see this is how Simon Peter came. He was, uh, of course, uh, called by Jesus to be a fisher of men, and his brother Andrew brought him to the Lord. And we know, as Sheila has said, that, uh, that Peter was married, and Peter had a wife, and she was part of his ministry, and she was with him. According to Jewish tradition, uh, which uh, I was not really aware of. Uh, according to Jewish tradition, Peter, and this is according to MacArthur's commentator, commentary, Peter was a witness to his wife's crucifixion. And so Peter had to watch his wife be crucified, and then he told her, according to tradition, remember the Lord. And that becomes the theme of Second Peter, as he reminds his wife before she's crucified to remember the Lord. So we see that she was an integral part of his ministry. She's listed in several texts that she's with him in ministry. So we see this about Peter. Uh, the thing that the turning point in Peter's life uh, is, uh, is what? What is the turning point in Peter's life? And you're unmuted. The turning point in Peter's life is what? Boy, there's something loud. I'm going to take that off. The turning point in Peter's life is the denial. When, Jesus, when a Peter, who's typically bold and brash for the Lord, denies, exists, denies his, his relationship with Jesus Christ, and so... That was prophesied by Jesus. He told him that Satan desires to sift you as wheat. You're going to deny me. But he said, your faith is not going to fail. And when you've been restored, uh, I'm going to use you to encourage the brother. So the turning point of Peter's life where Peter takes the, where Jesus takes the denial and trans, begins a transformation process in his life when he reaffirms the familial relationship 
that we talked about last week is the denial uh, of Peter. And uh, we see that. We also see Peter in uh, in the book of Acts, that he was the one who initiated uh, the choosing of Matthias as the uh, disciple to replace Judas. We see Peter being the lead preacher as the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost. G- uh, Peter is the first recorded sermon in Acts chapter 2. So we see uh, Peter being the, the leading pastor after Pentecost. We see him performing miracles. And then we see Peter, who is an intensely nationalistic fellow. He's a proud Jew. He loved his fellow Jews. He is the apostle to the Jews. And we see God transforming his life by showing him a vision. Remember the vision with Cornelius and how he, uh, in a vision, he, uh, he taught Peter that there's nothing uh, arise, kill, and eat. He's told, he taught Peter to be, instead of being so intensely nationalistic and maybe prejudiced toward the nation of Israel, I'm going to also use you to open the doors to the Gentiles, to my church. And so we see Peter's heart being changed by the vision, by Cornelius's conversation, and we see uh, the beginning of this story of First Peter as we see God working in his life. Now, uh, one of the most important things that we can talk about in the, uh, in the, in the story of First Peter, we have to know the background. And so the background is, is quite simple. Uh, the background is uh, probably written about 64, 65 A.D., about 30 years after Jesus has died, after he's uh, resurrected, and after he's ascended into glory. And we see that Paul is in Rome. Uh, that's where this book was most probably written in Rome. It's called Babylon in, in chapter 5, verse 13. Most scholars think that's Rome. And uh, what's going on in the nation uh, in Rome at that time is that uh, it is being ruled by a madman by the name of Nero. He's the emperor. Uh, and Nero is a... Uh, by all of the things I've read by Joseph's Antiquities and some of the other readings, uh, Nero was a madman. He had murdered his own mother. He was power hungry. And, uh, and so what he did about 64 AD, according to most scholars, it's a consensus. He himself, uh, burned Rome. He started fires in Rome. And what he wanted to do is he wanted to be popular, so he wanted to appeal to the to the uh, lower class system in Rome. So to burn Rome, he wanted to be famous for rebuilding Rome, to be popular with his people, with the nation of Rome. And so what he did is he, uh, most scholars think he started the fires. And then what he did, he blamed the Christians. He said, well, these Christians... They're revolting against the kingdom. They're revolting against my rule. So he's blamed the Christians on these fires that were started. And then we know from history, this is where the gladiators came in. The gladiators would uh, slay the Christians in the Roman Colosseums for sport. And the Christians would be fed to the lions for sport. The Christians would be burnt at the stake. So the, the book of First Peter is written during a time of great trials 
and persecution and troubles. And as a side note, guys, this COVID-19 is in no way uh, anything like what the people in First Peter are going through. These people feared for their lives because they were suffering for the gospel. I dare say none of us have suffered for the gospel like these folks did. They were in fear for their life. They were being pulled out of their houses uh, for trusting in the Lord, and uh, and they were given opportunity to recant the faith, and they were bold, and they did not recant the faith, and they suffered for their faith. And so Paul is writing to this people who is going through this faith at this particular time. And so we see that's what happened later on. Nero, in, his, in a psychopathic rage, kills himself, and uh, he blames his servant for it in some of his writings. So Nero is is the backdrop of this, and Nero is the one who eventually kills Peter. And according to tradition, Peter didn't think himself to be worthy to be crucified like his Lord, so he was crucified upside down, which is basically going to be in fulfillment of what Jesus had said to him. You're going to be taken where you don't want to go. We talked about that last week. So uh, that's the backdrop of this. Now, now the the great theme of this book, there's one major theme, but there are three sub-themes, and these sub-themes are so important because they help us to get through the major theme, if you'll let me speak that way. But the major theme of of, uh, the book of Peter is suffering and persecution. So if you had to identify the theme of the book, it is in the midst of these sufferings and these threatenings and these persecutions, there is an overarching theme of, of, of trials and persecution and suffering. And he calls them fiery trials. And so it is, uh, it's very important for us as readers of this book to understand the context, uh, whereas it was written. So let's look at some of these verses. Uh, there is, uh, in every chapter, the first, in all five chapters, there is, uh, there are verses that identify the theme of the book. So if you will, uh, let's turn to, uh, chapter one, verse six. As we identify, uh, the theme of this book, which is suffering and persecution. These are texts we're all very familiar with. And we're gonna put them under a microscope later on. And we're going to examine them all very well, but I just want to get you started uh, with this. Uh, The theme of the book, chapter 1, verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revealing of Jesus Christ. So we see theme uh, identified number one, verse chapter one, verse six. This is a book on suffering, and it's a book on trials of life. Uh, turn with me to chapter two, verse 12. Chapter two, verse 12. Uh, we also see this, Peter speaking to these uh, folks, and we'll identify him in a second, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God 
in the day of visitation. So we see they're being falsely accused. They're considered evildoers. They're considered to be uh, enemies of the state of Rome, and they are falsely accused. We see that in verse 12. Look at verse 19 of the same chapter. Chapter 2, we see this uh, about the, 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 the folks he's addressing. Chapter 2, verse 19, for this is commendable because of conscience toward God. One endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is you if you are beaten for your faults? You take it patiently. But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable. For to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example. So these folks are suffering. They are following the example of Christ, and they have a good conscience, and they are suffering uh, for good works that they're doing. So we see this. Look at chapter 3. This thing continues. Uh, in chapter 3, uh, look at verse uh, 9. Look what he says. Don't return evil for evil or reveling, reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, knowing you were called to this. So Paul, I mean, Peter addresses them, you're being reviled, but don't revile back, but rather bless. And we're going to get into the impossibility of this unless the Holy Spirit is, is leading and filling us. And we'll talk about this. Look at verse 13. Uh, who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed. And don't be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. So we see every chapter, there is this theme of suffering. Uh, look at chapter 4, verse 1. Christ suffered for us in the flesh. Therefore, arm yourself with the same mindset that Christ had. So we see suffering in chapter 4, verse 1. Look at verse 12, uh, the same chapter 4, uh, 4, verse 12. Don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to trial you. And so we see this theme of suffering, and we see this, the purposes and third of suffering and being reproached uh, for the name of Christ. And then look at chapter uh, 5, verse 8. <clears throat> be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. So we see this whole premise of suffering, of persecution. He identifies uh, the component of it is Satan trying to destroy the witness of the people. He's trying to squash the beginning is of Christianity is trying to uh, discourage the body of Christ. And so we see this. And then miraculously, we understand from, from the revelation and from the history that, that instead of squashing, instead of discouraging, the body of Christ grows and thrives through persecution as God's spirit enables his church to thrive and grow through the suffering. So, so we see this great theme of suffering uh, that, is, uh, that is prevalent throughout this book. Any comments on this suffering? You're all unmuted. Uh, do you have any comments about the theme of suffering and, 
And we're going to get into this in great detail, but that's the theme of this book. Any comments about that? And, and, and what Peter does beautifully uh, is what he does is he doesn't hide from the suffering. He doesn't uh, try to hide the fact that life is difficult, the way is narrow, and few find it. What he does is he, he uses, he, he, he redirects the mind of the believer and he causes them through the Spirit's leading and he brings them to remember the blessing. He brings them to remember the hope and he, and he shows them that the way to victory is not to be to escape trouble but to persevere through it. And then, and then the primary reasons of the secondary things are he calls us to remember the blessings. And he causes us to remember uh, that we, we, we advance through persecution, through obedience. And we don't shirk our responsibility, but we gladly yield to him and obey him through it. And so the, he shows us that he has yeah, of enduring uh, persecution and victory through persecution is obedience and, and remembering the blessing and even evangelism. And we'll talk about that in great detail. Now, the primary theme, if it's, uh, if it's suffering and persecution, then then. Very, very obvious. The secondary theme that I want us to look at is hope. So if you're writing this down, I will, I will have you some notes later on, God willing. But if you're looking at primary theme, you've got persecution, but secondary theme that causes us to endure through the primary theme is hope. And the hope is a very real theme in the book of, in the book of Peter. So look at some verses on hope as we look at this. Look at 1-3 as we look at some verses. This is going to be the secondary theme of this fantastic biographical and autographical book. Look at 1-3. Uh, We're going to really camp on this next week about our heavenly inheritance uh, and the beauty of this and the hope in this. But look at this just one verse now. Blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope. Hope. Who is our hope in? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. It is hope in a person, and that hope, Scripture tells us, is sure, and it is steady, and it is a what for our soul. What's the fill in the blank? A bomb. It's an anchor for our soul. So remember the story of Peter when he walks on the water, he sees the storms raging. No accident, the Holy Spirit uses that anchor reference. Peter would be very aware, the, the readers would be aware of storm and trying to walk on the sea in the storms. And then he, he when he looks to Christ, he, he's able to do it. But that's a picture of his anchor as a fisherman against the great storms of, of the Lake Galilee. So we see that Christ is this hope. He's this anchor for our soul. So uh, very aware of the analogy that Peter would use as a fisherman, this term anchor. Look at uh, 
Look at verse 13. Look at verse 13 of this secondary theme of hope. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and what? Rest your what? Hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought at the revealing of Jesus Christ. So we see hope, and that's a future hope, and he's pointing them to the future revealing of Jesus Christ. He is telling them that through persecution, one must hope in Christ. And so we see that. Look at verse 21. Uh, Another reference to hope. Verse 21, chapter 1. We see uh, the apostle writes, who through Jesus believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope are in God. So we see some theology here that Jesus is God. We see that the Father uh, has sent his Son, and we see him raised from the dead. So we have this blessed hope in Jesus Christ. So we see that. Look at chapter 3, verse 15. As we see hope. As a secondary cause, secondary theme of this book. Look at uh, verse uh, 15, chapter 3. Set apart the Lord God in your hearts. Always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the what? For the hope is in you. With meekness and fear. So we see hope is... uh, as a reminder, as a call to remembrance... That when we're suffering, we hope in a future glory. We hope in Christ. We hope in his present salvation. We hope in his future salvation. Uh, this, another major theme, if you're writing these down, is the revealing of Jesus Christ. Over and over, he uses this term, the revealing of Jesus Christ. Look at one five in the, in the book of Peter, one five. We see this revealing of Jesus Christ. Verse 5, chapter 1. Who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So he's pointing the sufferers. He's pointing us to look towards a day when we're going to see the Lord Jesus Christ in the clouds. And we're going to see him. And we're going to be caught up in the clouds and meet him in the air. So we should have this blessed, future-looking, present-minded hope in the return and catching up with ourselves with the Lord to be with him forever. So we see the revealing. Look at verse 7, same chapter. Uh, we see verse 7. I've read part of this already. Uh, that the genuineness of your faith is more precious and gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the what? Revelation of Jesus Christ. So he's pointing to a time when Jesus is going to reveal himself to us in glorious splendor in his second coming. So he's calling people. He's, he's pointing them to, to uh, not looking at the seas around them, but pointing and looking to Savior Jesus Christ. So we see that. And then we see that also uh, in chapter 3, verse uh, 9. 3, verse 9, this theme of the revealing of Jesus Christ. Look at this. 
three men. Not returning evil for evil, uh, reveling for reveling, or reviling for reviling, however it's pronounced, but put on the, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing you were called to this, that you may what? Inherit a blessing. This is secondary thing, calling us to look forward to the future reward, future glory. Look at four seconds. Look at that. But the end of all things is at hand. Another picture of revealing of Christ. Future anticipation, not present circumstance. He will preserve us. Look at verse 13 of chapter 4. As we look at this uh, in First Peter, it says, I love this verse, but rejoice to the extent that you are partaker of Christ's suffering, that when his what? Glory is revealed. We see this theme there is a coming day when Christ will reveal himself. Look at verse 17. For the time has come for judgment. Talking about a future time, a present time of judgment in the church, and is pointing to a future time of judgment. So it's a reminder that we need to be faithful and obedient. Look at 5.1. Uh, you think this isn't a thing? The elders who are among you, I exhort. I'm a fellow elder. I'm a witness of the sufferings of Christ. I'm a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. See what he's doing? He's causing us to look forward, put our eyes on Christ. Look at verse 4, chapter 5. And when the chief shepherd appears, talking about Jesus Christ, of course, you're going to receive a crown of glory. See what he's doing? He's focusing our eyes on Christ. Uh, look at verse uh, 6. Humble yourselves under God's hand that he may exalt you in due time. That's a reference to future time. One day he is going to exalt the lowly. And one day we're going to be with, ruling and reigning with him. See what he's doing. He's pointing us. He's encouraging us. Uh, in verse 10 we see chapter 5, the last reference to the revealing. May the God of all peace who called us to his eternal glory. See, he's got his eyes, got our eyes focusing on him. So you see what he's doing? He's using life experience. He's he's being autobiographical. He's, he's, he's relating to people who are suffering, and he's calling them to focus on the glories of Christ as our beautiful Savior that he is. So we see that. You may see that. Any comments or questions about uh Secondary theme, the revealing of Christ, and we're gonna, as Keith would say, we're gonna, we're gonna drop a parachute and land on this, and we're gonna unpack this as we get into this good book. Any comments about, uh, 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 about the revealing of Christ and the anticipation and the encouragement he's building in us as people? Uh, and the last thing, and this one is so obvious, as a matter of fact, I'm probably going to outline this book, which is uh, very difficult to outline notoriously. Uh, I want you to look at this theme of obedience. And this is a theme you may not see, but obedience is a primary focus of this book. And obedience is used as a means to cope with the trials and the troubles, to be faithful. And we see what, what Peter does. He uses seven imperative commands in this book. 
And all of these, do you know what an imperative command is besides Terry? What is an com imperative command? Does anybody know? Got to do it. Got to do it. Got to do it. This isn't a suggestion. This isn't a by the way. This is prudent. This is, is, this is as a command is thou shalt honor thy father and thy mother. This is, this is, a reminds me of the imperatives of Thessalonians. Rejoice evermore. Pray without ceasing. Right? These are imperative commands of obedience. And these imperative commands are not optional, but these imperative commands enable us to endure the hardship and to be faithful followers of Christ. Now, the word therefore, I know you've heard Terry say this. What is, when you see the word therefore in scripture, what do you look out for? What does that word really translate? I mean, what are we thinking when you see the word therefore? Because. Because. And so typically in scripture, i.e. Uh, uh, Romans 8, 1, therefore there's no condemnation because of the theology that preceded it, because we have peace and access with God through the, through the blood of Christ, because we died to our flesh, because, because the Holy Spirit indwells us, because we're adopted sons, therefore there's no more condemnation. So when you see the word therefore, because that's going to hint that there is some doctrine or there is some teaching that either proceed it or follow it that is going to be the reason why the command is made. So let's look at these. This is very important. You know this, and I may even outline the whole book. I haven't really decided yet. But look at these are seven imperative commands that Peter uses generally the uh, – the writers of the Bible are instructed by the Spirit. Generally, there's theology, like in Ephesians, the first three chapters of Ephesians are theology. And then Paul says, because of the theology, you need to walk worthy, right? Because of the theology of Romans 1 through 8, and you have a little parenthesis 9 through 11, but because of the theology of 1 through 8, Therefore, you are able to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your body because of the theology, right? And we see that in Philippians, and we see all of these books where there's theology. But Peter's a little different. It intermixes the theology with the practical application a little differently than Paul's writings do. So let's look at these, uh, if you'll allow me to do this real quick. The first one we see is 113. 113 in Peter. The first imperative command. If you're writing these down, we're going to go with them, but there are seven imperative commands. Uh, no accidents in number seven. Uh, but we'll see this. Seven imperative commands of obedience that help us to endure the suffering, the affliction, and, and help us to see the revealing of Jesus Christ. We're obedient. Verse 13. Therefore, how because because of the, the the past doctrine that we just discussed, and we will discuss next week this blessed hope of inheritance. Therefore, commandment number one, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and rest your hope. Anybody have any comment about what it means to gird up the loins of your mind? Prepare. 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 Uh, 
There's no accident that Peter uses this word, gird up. You remember when he's fishing and he, they have to they have to change garments and uh, and so uh, Peter is using this term. He's familiar with. Remember, he's an uneducated, untrained, so he uses his realities to explain and identify with his people. So he would know that term. Remember when he saw Jesus on the shore in his second fishing trip? He just jumped into the water. He put on his. He just. He just. So gird up, prepare your mind, uh, strap your seatbelts in, and get ready for this ride. It's just a. It's a call to action to actively. Uh, be consciously aware in your mind and in your emotions and your heart that when you go through these trials, that you need to particularly uh, focus yourself and your emotions to obedience to Christ. So gird up your mind, and then we're going to see imperative one. Gird up your mind, be sober, and rest your hope in the revelation of Christ. And we're going to talk about that in great detail. Second imperative, if you're writing these down, if you're not, I will have them for you uh, when I give you the notes, but uh, this may be helpful for you. Imperative 2, chapter 2, verse 1. Imperative 2, under obedience. Therefore, here we go again. Something has gone before, and what's gone before is the enduring, purifying word. Look what he says, 2-1. Lay aside all malice. Lay aside deceit hypocrisy, envy, and evil speaking. So as we're going through this suffering, as we're looking to the revealing of Christ, we need to walk worthy of the vocation wherein we're called, as Paul says, this all theology matches, none of it contradicts. So we see Peter saying, lay aside the malice, lay aside the, the evil thinking and the, and the bitterness and the uh, it may be a part of, 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 of going through this process of suffering. Hatred toward your captives. Hatred toward those who are subjecting you to this, which is impossible to do, right, without the work of the Spirit. So we see imperative to lay aside the malice, lay aside the bitterness, and lay aside the deceit. So we see that. Look at 2.13. As we're looking at the third imperative. The third imperative we see in 2.13, another one, there was therefore again, 2.13, submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. Now, does this seem grossly unfair to you as a believer? The, the nation of, I mean, these pilgrims who are in Rome, these believers, Peter tells them to submit to the ordinance of man, and what is man doing to them? Persecuting them. They're persecuting them. And Peter has the audacity, talking about brashness as the Holy Spirit leads them. Peter says in the third imperative, submit yourself to the ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. If you think you're struggling with government edicts, of not gathering 10 or more, or not going to retail shops, or not being able to get your hair cut. You think you're struggling with some of the government edicts, and, and, the, gov and the mayor of Dallas, you can't even walk your dog. I mean, it's draconian in some areas, okay? But if you think that's difficult, what about this, what Peter says, submit to every ordinance, and these guys are killing you. 
these guys are, are burning you at the stake. So obviously Peter is demonstrating to us the impossibility of this in our own flesh, the necessity of obedience and walking in the spirit. He is calling this suffering people to submit as a picture of our submission to Christ as Christ submitted to his father. So this is atypical of what we would think, but Peter calls us to obedience to the ordinances, even if it means your life. And we'll learn about this and uh, see the impossibility of this, except for Christ. Uh, Edict number four, uh, imperative number four, is we see Peter telling us the pathway to the blessing and the pathway to enduring suffering is uh, is through obedience. Look at uh, uh, imperative number four in four one. Therefore, that word again, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourself with the same mind. And the scripture tells us we have the mind of Christ. We're filled with his spirit. We need to understand this is our pathway. This is what he's called us to. He's sovereign in this. And so we need to, as, 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 as Paul said about Christ, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And so we're to, we're to, we're to joy endure the suffering as these people were called to. So that's an imperative. Have the mind of Christ. And we'll talk about that in great detail once we get here. Look at 419. This is the uh, fifth imperative. Uh, the fifth imperative. Actually, this is the sixth, isn't it? No, verse seven uh, is the fifth imperative. Excuse me. Uh, but the end of all things, therefore, fifth imperative, be serious and watchful in your prayers. Fifth imperative, verse seven, chapter four, be watchful in your prayers. If there's ever been a time to be faithful and pray to Father now, in the name of Christ, it's now. We need to pray. As we seek to glorify Him, as we seek to live out our lives during these days, prayer is essential. It communicates us. It, it equips us, and it, it, it keeps us connected to Christ, to each other. So pray. Fifth imperative, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And we'll talk about that in great detail. Number six imperative, as we warm up, as we get into this great book, chapter 4, verse 19. Therefore, that word again, let those who suffer, and it's according to God's will. Look at this. Commit your soul to him in doing good. That word, we'll get into it. It means keep on making a deposit. Keep on committing your soul, and you are making a deposit for glory in this life. As you are being faithful, obedient to opportunities around you, you are making a down payment. What is a down payment to your soul in the future glories? What do you think about that? Down payment to future glory. And then lastly, so autobiographical of Peter. He can say this with great confidence and great humility. Look at 5-6. The last imperative obedience, Peter says through experience, Peter remembers the denial 
Therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. As he remembers how God began changing his life, as he humbled that brash fisherman who says, hey, everybody else may fail you, everybody else but not me. Peter remembers, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due season. So we see all of these commandments, all of these imperatives that are going to equip us to deal with the suffering and the persecution that may yet, listen, that may yet be a part of what we go through as believers. And so we see this. Uh, and so this book is incredible. It also answers some practical questions. How do we deal with animosity, relationship to government? How do you uh, relate to your wife as far as being submission to one another in love? How do we, how do Christian women conduct themselves uh, during this time of suffering? And then we're going to talk about the, one of the most difficult verses in Scripture. What did Christ do after he died, before he arose? How do you explain he preached to the spirits? And we're going to talk about that. And if Terry's still with us, I may have him give us the real explanation because very difficult scripture. And so we're going to talk about that in great detail. Uh, to close this out, I know time is waning. This book is written to Christian people. This book cannot be understood, cannot be identified with uh, people who are not in the faith. This would be Greek. This would be alien. This would be otherworldly to non-believers that they would be called to obey Christ and they would be called to, to look to the future blessings. They would be uh, called to this hope when they don't have any. So this book is written to believers. It's written to two people. It's written to Converted Jewish Christians. If you look at chapter 1, there's no accident. If you look at chapter 1, the salutation. Peter, the apostle of Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And if you, if you, if you remember history, these are the folks that were at Pentecost when Peter preached his first sermon. If you look at Acts 2, uh, as the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, and as Peter preaches his first sermon in Acts chapter 2, it tells us who was at this sermon. And it tells us in chapter 2, uh, verse... Uh, I can start at verse 5. So Peter is writing to the recipients of the gospel as Pentecost came. There's these folks who were in Jerusalem for the celebration of Pentecost. And then they were dispersed because of Jewish persecution. Look at the chapter 2, verse 5. There was dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and when the sound came, this is the rushing wind of the Pentecost, the multitude came together, they're confused, and everyone started hearing people speaking their own language. We skip down in verse, uh, to verse 8. How is it that we hear each in our own language 
Parthenians, Medes, Elamites, Mesopotamia, Judah, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Persia, and Pamphylia, dwelling in, in Mesopotamia. So these folks that were converted at Pentecost, these are the very ones that have been dispersed, and these are the very ones that are suffering persecution in Rome. So, so Peter is writing to these converts. He's also writing to many Jew, uh, Gentile converts who were saved through the preaching of the gospel after the gospel is opened up to the Gentile world through Peter and through Paul. We see these folks are also gathered here. So we see the message is to these people just passing through, these pilgrims who are looking for a heavenly city whose builder and maker is God, who's sojourning to this world, who are not looking at their surroundings, but they're looking for the blessed hope of Christ and his coming. He's being encouraging them. So we see this wonderful book open up. We're going to see Peter and all of his humility and what he's remembered from Christ. And so hopefully this will be as exciting to you as it is. Uh, any comments or questions? I know I've talked a lot. I apologize. But uh, this is an opening to this book. Next week, if you will, read and try to soak your mind in verse 3 through 5. As we talk about the future hope, we're kept by the Spirit. We're talking about our inheritance that's coming. As we meander and as we go through this world, we look to the blessed hope. Right. Any comments or questions uh, before we get dismissed as we open up this good study on the book of 1 Peter? Uh, I'm excited, as you can tell, and I hope you are too. Great book. Any comments or questions about this book uh, before we let you go? Any comments or questions? All right, I will pray, and then I'm going to leave this uh, web Zoom room open. You're free to chat and to talk uh, until until uh, Terry comes on live stream at 11 o'clock, uh, but I'm going to leave this room open, and Keith's room will be open so you guys don't get lost in Zoom room. So I'm going to leave this room open. I'll mute my button and walk off, but you guys feel free to chat. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this book. Thank you for your prescription to get us through to the revealing of Jesus Christ, and that's obedience, and that's through hope. And I thank you for the process that you call us to yourself, that you shape us to be like your son, and it's through difficult road as we emulate the sufferings of Christ. Thank you for what you teach us. Thank you for what you are working in us. And as we start this book, I just pray that we would always reflect on the blessings of this book. We would also always reflect on the hope in this book as we obediently follow our Savior. And we look to the blessed hope in the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for this group of people who are faithful and love to read your word and study your word. I thank you for them. I take them not for granted. Bless them. Cause your face to shine upon them and give them your peace and use them for your glory in these days. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.